somebody else. If you came from this kind of a family, that separates you from somebody that comes from another family. If you go to Auburn, that separates you from somebody who went to some other kind of a college. Uh, it, uh, identity is, in fact, a separating thing if it is humanly engendered. Uh, or it is a despair-creating thing, because you might say, I can never have the identity of him, and therefore I can never do with my life what I want to do. I'm entirely cut off because of my handicap, because of this or that or the other thing, and I hate my brother. I hate my brother because he has perhaps the love of my mother. Um, all of these things relate. Every fairy tale you've ever read, just read Cinderella again. Read uh, The Little Mermaid. Uh, read anything you want to read, and you'll find that identity separates. The third issue, and I just say this to uh, fill up the time uh, emotionally, is that identity uh, comes uh, from outside yourself. And we know this because everybody here knows that the only thing that matters is love. The only thing that really you'll do anything for is love. That is the only thing that really ultimately defines is the being loved. And uh, this is, uh, I do marriages, we all do marriages every single Saturday. And it is, remember that the question of human existence is not whether I love her, but it's whether she loves me. It doesn't matter if I love her. I can love her till the cows come home. But unless she loves me, nothing's going to happen. And so love is always uh, born uh, in the sense of being born from a womb by the experience of being loved from outside yourself. That is inevitable, and when it happens, you'll do anything. You will leave your family for it. You will move to France for it. You will give up everything for it. If, you know, one of the Vanderbilts on that History Channel thing the other night, he, he was a physician, she, the beautiful woman of Vanderbilt married a physician, but a physician was considered not an honorable profession in the late 19th century. So he, it, he was very much had the idea that in order to be married to this Vanderbilt lady, he had to uh, no longer be a physician and go into the family business, which he did. Now that's love. But you know, you'll do it. Anyone here is capable of doing anything for love. As it says in the Bible, uh, uh, a love cannot be conquered, it cannot be flooded out, and if a man were given all the wealth of his house for love, he would throw it away with scorn. So uh, being loved from outside yourself, it's clear from our lives that identity is entirely something from outside ourselves. Now, we have in this passage a picture of, uh, of what um, happens in the Christian life and how the resurrection uh, creates um, identity. And I want to talk about verse 10 and verse 11, and then I'm going to finish what he is saying is that he's given up all the human identity factors that uh, he has held on to in the form of his curriculum vitae, which was in verses 1 through 7, all the things that made him a worthy and fine soul. And then he says, uh, having given all those things up, all that he wants to know now, he doesn't want to know about himself anymore. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. But then he throws in this verse, which I find alienating uh, and irritating. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And of course, I'd like it to stop there. But what does he add? Let's read the next phrase. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, in uh, Christianity, uh, which is, by the way, simply a uh, rapidly uh, uh, transmitted version of the truth of life, 
Christianity is a, is a perspective on life that empirical experience always ratifies. It is not, the Christian understanding of mankind is not something that is, uh, unique. it's like the Trinity or something. It's not something that we believe on faith. The Christian understanding that man is a sinner in need of redemption is something that is self-evident to anyone who has the eyes to see the way life actually pans out. And what this says, this passage, is that uh, the uh, resurrection and death uh, are working in an extraordinary relationship throughout our lives. What it is to say is that you can't rise until you've died. And this, is, this accounts for the, the strength of the message that I give week after week after week, and I cannot depart from, that the power of God only functions when someone dies to whatever it is that is making you God. Whatever it is uh, that is that you are holding on as a self-defining thing in your life has to die by definition for God to work in your life. This is why um, when there's an impasse in your life, when there's a problem, that's when the Christianity always comes uh, into play, and that's why Christianity will never die, because it is a, it is a perspective on life which uh, permeates all existence under the rubric of death, uh, because only when we die to this, that, and the other thing, and it's always burned off us, it's burned off us by painful experience, can we know him in the power of his resurrection. We, of course, want to skip the second part of that verse. And why this is true is that creation, creation in the Bible, is never gradualist. It's never uh, improvement. It's never a process. Yes, we can say a lot about process, and you know I like to diss that word, and people get very upset with me, especially if they're mainstream liberal Protestants, because they're so into process. And I sometimes say things deliberately over the top just to get you to think, you know, I may be wrong about this whole thing. Obviously, I'm 20% wrong if you read what I said recently. But, this is, but, but, but I don't believe I'm wrong on this one, as I wouldn't say it. Um, what happens in the Bible is creation is from nothing. Creation is not uh, from something to get better. Creation is not, let's take a little bit and make it more. It's not as if, um, what happened in the feeding of the 5,000? There were 5,000 people there. And they had two little sort of fish and some loaves of bread that were, they're basically, you know, the loaves over there, they're about this big. And if, if you mean they, they, they took a little bit and made it more? Obviously not. They took nothing and made it into something. And that's the essence of human experience. We come to the impasse, we are blocked, we take a deep breath, we can't move forward, and then uh, the Christian response is that God uh, always works through the death to the resurrection. Now that is some um, very heavy view of life, uh, but it is the uh, it is the absolute uh, essence of what real experience is. And if you if you turn your eyes to it, you'll be so shocked when you come to terms with impasse, because uh, uh, you find that there are things that all the effort in the world haven't been able to. You know, look at, look at uh, Lady Macbeth. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot cleanse this hand of mine. I've got something in my mind, and it's very big, and I can't seem to find a way through it. And so uh, the power of this, actually, remember, it's always good news. This is the good news to the sufferer. It's not good news to the person that believes they have free will or control or, you know, uh, semi-Pelagianism, which is the idea that, that, that I'll do, if God does his part, I'll do my part. 
you know, that's for the birds. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe it, and there's some, maybe there's a truth in it, uh, but uh, the power of Christianity is always that I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this, of course, is the greatest good news of all because it says that the death that you're dying to, you know, I mean, who here likes their children to grow up? To me, it's the most uh, painful experience of my middle years. Not because the children aren't turning out very wonderfully, but because I wish they were back when they were little. I, I, I mourn over them because I really, I, they have such a tug in my heart when they were little that I find it very, very irritating that they are no longer, and more than that, I mourn their loss. Or, um, you know, the fact is that you really, your body really is getting older. And you may, th I still think, just like you do, that I'm 24, but I'm not 24. The other day, uh, we were looking at a picture last night of when I married a couple at Grace Church in New York, and Mary looked gorgeous, totally unchanged, sunglasses, all this wonderful black hair, and, and I looked, apparently I looked young, and Mary said, she looked at this picture last night, she said, oh, how young we were then. And I said, I honestly said, don't I look like that now? <laughs> yeah, but, but I said it with conviction. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm self-deceived, uh, but um, the, the, uh, the power of this, and I have two points to make today, and then we're done. Uh, the power of this is that um, I, am, I am dead, and I can come alive again. I'm not alive while I'm dead. I have to die. That's why he says becoming like him in his death. He doesn't say becoming like him in his diminution or in his humility, becoming like him in his death, that I may know the power of his resurrection. Now, I have one other thing I want to say. The first thing was that life follows from death, and we're not talking about gradualism um, or some kind of process or discipline. You know, remember the song by Huey Lewis in the news, Step by Step. Sounds good, not true, but it sounds good. It would be really great if people grew by natural osmosis. Uh, but it's not my experience, and if it's yours, I'm interested to know. Um, but uh, the second great issue, and it's related to the first, is verse 11. Let's read verse 11. That, if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, this is very uh, difficult verse, uh, because it seems to say, uh, make the resurrection of the dead conditional. Because, you know, we don't believe in conditional salvation. We don't, we don't say that, well, you can blow it tomorrow and then don't come to communion. You know, don't come to communion if you've blown it because your salvation is in jeopardy and you don't deserve to take communion. We don't believe that. That was thrown out at the Reformation. Uh, we believe uh, that, that the essence of God's offer is decisive, absolute, and unconditional, and that we will always be in trouble, but God will always love us totally. Now, that's the power of the message. So I don't like this. This, if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So let me tell you what I think it means. What, I, what it means is simply, what I've often said to you before, that there is no time in your life when you will ever be um, exempt from an abyss of sin, despair, and devastation. In other words, you, there is no time in life at which you are not susceptible to losing everything through a terrible incursion of sin and recidivism, and uh, there are all sorts of words for it. Um, as I often say to you, we think 
that after a certain age, we'll get it out of our system. We think that when we become retired, we will find uh, our answer. And uh, just spend time uh, in any place like that, and you discover that people are just as envious, just as sinful, just as subject to wild outbursts of temper, just as bitter as you can find. And uh, what we find in life, really, is that the um, character of life as being an abyss uh, never ends. I see people, some, uh, let me, I asked a question on Thursday. How, what proportion of people do you think change their will in the last 10 years of their life? Anybody want to guess? 80% close. I, uh, somebody, uh, the best I got from one very experienced lawyer was simply a lot <laughs> who handles this, which I think is a very safe answer. Um, <clears throat> my experience of, uh, of, of wills, and it's not considerable, but it's not inconsiderable, is that, uh, is that wills uh, are changed, uh, loving is changed, degrees of thankfulness are changed, degrees of debt, degrees of bitterness, degrees of hatred are uh, mediated right up to till the very end, and any novel by George Eliot or by Charles Dickens will tell you what is absolutely true in every law office in Birmingham who handles wills. Uh, that means that uh, people are capable, right up to the end, of astonishing, uh, deeply uh, uh, dreadful falls from grace, and there is absolutely no guarantee until the very end. Now, I have something positive to say, but I want to read you a great quote. This is just one book, right? Stephen King's book, and Nita surprised me with it. What a sweet thing, because I wasn't going to buy it, because I had heard through the grapevine that Stephen King pulled back on his doctrine of providence, which is so high in desperation, in the stand, in the green mile, and even in Dreamcatcher, and I'm, he pull, he's pulled back from this. He's probably afraid of being considered something a little bit too religious. Uh, but uh, he has a brilliant quote in it, and then I want to say something about the book as it relates to this. This is a quote in which he's talking, he's reflecting on uh, uh, various uh, friends of his who are retired. These are retired police officers in Pennsylvania. This is the quote. There comes a time when most folks see the big picture and realize they're puckered up not to kiss smiling fate on the mouth, but because life just slipped them a pill and it tastes bitter. Now, that is a, a very a revealing quote. Let me reveal, read it one more time. There comes a time when most folks see the big picture and realize they're puckered up not to kiss smiling fate on the mouth, which is what all young people believe. Just by definition, all young people, you all think you're going to marry the right person and you think you're going to have the right job. It just comes with the territory. But they're puckered up not to kiss smiling fate in the mouth, but because life just slipped them a pill and it tastes bitter. And uh, the, uh, the power of this text is first that it locates resurrection where it can only happen, which is in the face of the death and the burning off of something about your life that you used to set great store by. And secondly, right up to the end, it is possible to, uh, uh, to be extraordinarily venal, difficult, bitter, and cruel. And that is what I wanted to say. Now, I want to say one other thing about uh, this book. Um, uh, Stephen King's a major figure, and this will be number one in a few weeks, and we know all that, and I like his work so much, but he raises one very important question. The uh, Buick represents fate and God and the unknown and the questions of life that hit us in the forms of a 
automobile accident, a sick child, uh, a uh, heart attack on the golf course, a stroke at a too early an age, uh, all the things that hit people. And the Buick represents simply those, uh, those uh, powers. And he does raise a vital question that all of you need to come to terms with as you read this passage in Philippians, that life is in fact a complete and total enigma on its own terms. And wisdom, uh, which has the eyes to see what life is like, unless you're Pollyanna and you have your own reasons for wanting to live in a never-never land, and 99% of people do, uh, life is an so enigmatic and so full of injustice and so full of crossed purposes and so full of missed opportunities and so full of absolute downright sin uh, that uh, you get to a certain stage and you look at it and you really have to say, what in the world? It's got to be watched. It's got to be, be treated very carefully. It's a very serious business, and it'll be a miracle if you're lucky, which is the big word people use today, enough to make it to your 70s without some major problem. There's a line in Shadow of a Doubt, the Hitch, don't worry, I'm getting somewhere. There's a line in Shadow of a Doubt with a wonderful Hitchcock film from the 40s in which McDonald Carey, bless his heart, for days of our lives, uh, McDonald Carey, who plays a detective who's just presided at the funeral of a very, very wicked man, but it was all hushed up. A very, very wicked man who tried to murder his niece and almost succeeded. Uh, he turns to the other cop outside the little Episcopal church in Sunnyvale, California, which is where all Hitchcock movies take place. And he says to him, the world's a very rough place, isn't it, Bill? And then the other man says, yes, I guess it's got to be watched. Now, the power of that, and it's exactly King's view, uh, in relate to Christianity is, it is true save one affirmation. And that affirmation is that, um, is that uh, there was a man who uh, took and grasped hold of the enigma and without flinching took on the enigma of uh, innocent victimization and injustice willingly upon his own uh, shoulders. And uh, the Christian faith, unlike Islam, and unlike Buddhism, and unlike Judaism, looks at the world with extraordinary dark glasses. Extraordinary dark glasses, which is in fact proven by experience, and it's why people become bitter. And it affirms that nevertheless, there was once, and once only, one man who looked at it, saw the extent of its uh, pus, to use Sartre's phrase, remember he talks about the, the other is the pus. Uh, he saw the pus and he willingly and radically uh, took it, the pus, and bathed himself in it. And in doing so, uh, actually uh, made a change in the ability of the pus to destroy. This uh, is powerfully expressed at the conclusion of Les Miserables, where uh, Jean Valjean has rescued uh, a man whose very existence means the end of all of Jean Valjean's hopes. He has rescued a man whose very continuing life means the loss of his daughter and his imprisonment forever. And he's rescued the man. And in order to rescue him, he had to climb through the sewers of Paris, which were sewers in the true sense of the word. And he sits next to Javert, the Pharisee, perfectly attired and absolutely correct. 
and Jean Valjean is covered with human waste from the sewers. It's very plain, exactly what it, from head to toe, he's covered. And this man, uh, who spells the end of all his human hopes, is lying a la the pieta across his knees. This is what Stephen King misses totally in From a Buick 8. And therefore, uh, his work is profoundly indictable. Uh, strong as it is on its own terms. Now, I've said a few things, and I'd love to know your response or questions about this uh, question of life, death, creation from nothing, and the McDonald Carey line, um, how you deal with the fact that life, you got to watch it, and just hope you're out of the firing line when it gets stroppy. Who wants to come on and uh, talk about this? or ask a question or make a comment. I never mind if it takes a while. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, Jim. Shot. Jim and then Fonda. Uh, you went to German universities and German philosophers used to think in terms you had a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis. Yep. But this morning you were saying something entirely different. You say it's death and resurrection yes. that goes the process. Yes. In short, there's no compromise. There is an end of one and the beginning of another. Yes. And that's sort of no, you're assuming that I'm a Hegelian. Uh, and I love, uh, what a wonderful question. Jim has said, Paul, you went to, that's what's, remember I talked about being entangled in my talk? Uh, Jim has said a great thing. He has said, uh, that was in the sermon, uh, that, uh, that if you were trained, what about the Hegelian idea which characterizes German idealistic philosophy, that there's a statement in life or a thesis, and then there's a statement against it called an antithesis, and the result of the two coming together is something called a synthesis. Well, naturally, I don't believe it. Number one, but I appreciate the point. Uh, I believe that uh, the nature of Christianity is a thesis and an antithesis. That there is no synthesis. Now, you don't have to believe that. That's fine. You go ahead and believe a synthesis. And if it works out in your marriage, God uh, pray, bless you. And if it works out with your child, I trust it's true. And I may be dead wrong, right? I've said this very powerfully to you. But in the Bible, the thesis is death, and the antithesis is life. Now, again, you don't have to agree, but you're absolutely right, Jim, and I appreciate your thought. Um, now, Fonda, but you see, but look at life. I mean, what is, if it, I mean, look, look at the flowers. Look at winter. You know, I can't stand Fantasia 2000. Have you seen Fantasia 2000? I mean, have you seen it with your children? It's the new Disney version of Fantasia. And right there, where in the 1953, or was it earlier? It may have been 48 version, where they had Ave Maria. At the end, they had Ave Maria after all the terrible stuff. Then uh, the beautiful Ave Maria was sung, and it was a deeply Christian statement of resurrection. In this one, they do it, of course, in a nature thing. It's nature. It's California. It's got to be. And there's, there's, this, there's, this, there's the winter. Winter is death and spring is life. But if you watch it carefully, winter never dies. She's really just dormant, waiting for the next step. And that's not the way life is. We're not dormant when we die. I wish it were true. Don't you? Don't you wish when your father died that he was dormant? Waiting for the time when he would come back? I mean, wouldn't you love to believe in cryogenesis? I'm signed up for it. 
I'm sure you, I honestly ask you to consider cryogenesis because I believe that at some time after I die, they'll find a cure for death. Uh, but if that were true, wouldn't we, who wouldn't want to be stored over there in wherever it is in Alabaster where they have all the cryogenically people? Um, but, but, it, but it's not true. The, the Disney Fantasia 2000 takes life as cryogenesis. We see life as it is, but, and that's why when you go to the Jerusalem, it's such a problem. Because when you go to the empty, the whole church of the, of, the, of the empty tomb, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this is where it happened. And the idea that the, and, and that the thesis of life could actually be shaken to its core by one man in one city, in one place, at one time, when I walk in there, part of me is very, very wary. I said, Mira, I don't know if I can go in here because, because I'm staking everything on this. If this didn't happen here, then... All we have is what we have. And so that's why when you go in, if you, if you, if you, if you, you go in with, with feet shaking, and, and this, of course, is why everybody cries, because if it were really true, whoa, that would be something. Fonda, Shea, raise up. You can handle them, they're not less, but you can handle the Buicks better. Right, or I know, okay, this is horrible, but it is going to be okay. Huh. Because that's what you said there in Texas. Right. Well, I think that's what happened to me. Yes, absolutely. What a, I, your question is powerful. Uh, Fonda has asked, if I'm just repeating for the West Coast here, is there a time when the, when the Buick, uh, when the Bu is there a moment perhaps when there's a, between Buicks or there's no Buick? Or, uh, the, the, my short answer is no. Uh, but uh, uh, short of 